Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. India has been described as a country of potential, but hiding behind that hopeful term are a few powerful statistics. By 2022, it is projected to surpass China as the most populated country in the world, and currently around 50% of India's people are below the age of 24. Here to discuss whether the youth in India is a demographic dividend or is a disaster is Professor Craig Jeffrey, Director of the Australia India Institute. Thank you for joining me, Craig. Hi, Matthew. Can you start by giving me some insight? What is it like to be a young person today in India? Well, it varies a huge amount according to whether you're male or female, whether you live in one of the metropolitan big cities like Delhi or Mumbai, or you come from a village, whether you're high caste or low caste, Hindu or Muslim, there's a huge variety of experience according to your place of birth and your social position. Mm. I think what I've been very interested in over the past 20 years is looking at the experiences of those who are relatively marginalized, so not the elite in in the big cities, but young people from relatively, you might say, ordinary backgrounds, lower middle class or poor backgrounds in North India's small towns and villages. So Mm. that's been my main interest. And their situation is pretty tough in lots of ways. They're increasingly exposed to images of the successful, rich, new Indian middle class. They see images of people succeeding in other countries. And so their aspirations have risen very quickly. You have this, what some sociologists have termed a a revolution of rising aspirations. Mm, mm. So their ambitions are high, but the possibilities to actually realize those ambitions are fairly limited. So most people can get to school now, they can get into primary school, but actually staying in school and getting a good education when you're there is pretty difficult because the public education system's quite under-resourced and private schooling is pretty expensive and a lot of the private schools aren't great either. Lots do make it, they get through primary school and secondary school into, into university, but there again, people are finding that their qualifications aren't providing access to secure salaried work, they're not finding that universities are giving them the skills that are required in the new economy. Now, of course, there are exceptions, there are some excellent universities in provincial India, but the general experience, I think, is one of frustration of a kind of gap between people's aspirations and the chances for them to realise those aspirations within education and work. Now, this is common to a lot of uh, countries, whether they be developed or otherwise, that there's a, a gap, there's competition, there's pressure. But with such a large youth population, it would be very pronounced in India, I imagine, compared to other countries. It's huge. Yeah. You started with some statistics. So just one that, that strikes me is that one in 10 people in the world is an Indian youth, by which I mean someone under 30, because of the structure of India's population and because of the size of India demographically. So it's, it's a huge problem. The sociologist Ronald Dorr wrote a book called The Diploma Disease in the 1970s, where he was talking about the rise of, of higher education and the problems of rising aspirations across the world. Mm. And in it, he described India as the country of the BA bus conductor. And I think now, a lot of the young people I work with, they cut off your arm to be a, a bus conductor. Yeah. Uh, India's become the country of the MA manual laborer. It's become a country where people like master's holders and PhD students are having to go back to their villages to work in manual labor. You're right that this is a global issue, but in India it's more intense. It's become, in a sense, the 
big political issue facing India at the moment and the success recently of, of Narendra Modi, who made, I think, a particular kind of promise to this big youth demographic is indicative of that. So it's not unheard of for a democratic government to be out of touch with youth in some ways. Is that the case in India? And is it something that needs to be changed or is trying to change? Sure. I mean, it's maybe useful to take a couple of steps back from that question and and first point out that one of the big puzzles for people analysing the whole experience of India since independence in 1947 is why there hasn't been a big social revolution. Mm. So you've got really high ambitions and you've got histories now of people being frustrated and seeking those aspirations. You've got quite durably marginalised communities like low caste and there hasn't been a big social revolution. Why? And I suppose another way of asking that question is why do people continue to hope in India? Why is hope such a major feature of the country and anyone who's been to India, anyone who's spent time working with people in India will recognise this theme of hope. And I think part of the answer lies precisely in electoral politics, that electoral politics has been very successful in India. Since they've introduced the none of the above, the nota option on electoral machines, the maximum number of votes for nota has been 2.02%, which is really indicative of the lack of cynicism Mm. among people with regard to party politics. I would have expected actually a much higher figure because I think people are sometimes frustrated with party politics. I'd expect none of the above to win most elections if given the chance. (laughs) In many countries, I think it would. But NOTO isn't competitive in India. And I think it's because people have very much come to believe in the importance of electoral politics. Voter turnout is very high. It's not like Australia where it's compulsory to vote. And people really see the electoral process and formal democracy as a way of expressing frustration, of trying to achieve change. And that, I think, partly explains why there hasn't been a revolution. And there are major problems like, I think, the democratic deficit associated with hereditary forms of politics, where, for example, people achieve power because of the fact of their birth, because their father or their mother was a famous politician. Those yeah. kinds of problems exist in India. But what you don't have is the kind of problems that you have in sub-Saharan Africa of, of political parties or politicians trying to cling to power even after having been voted out. The electoral process works. India has strong political institutions. And I think that means there is a certain traction between political parties and what they do and the public that they serve. I don't think that it's right to say that political parties are out of touch Mm. with their population or with young people. And you're actually seeing young people get much more involved with party politics now. The MPs are becoming younger. You're seeing the formation of new political parties like the Arm Admi Party, which has won power in Delhi. Arm Admi means ordinary man, ordinary person. You've got a very vibrant civil society. India is the only place in the world where the written press media is actually expanding. Mm. It's a place with which has seen a large number of rights movements recently, anti-corruption movements. I think actually it just shows the very rich range of ways in which people are political in that country. But do you think that there's a a risk of of that changing in any way? Because uh, in some ways uh, an underemployed population, especially when uh, there's a high number of young men who are underemployed, is kind of associated with potential violence and social disruption. 
Well, I you know, come back to that puzzle, that problem of, of educated unemployment has been there for a long time. Now, mm. you do have examples of where they've become involved in politics. You have the Jai Prakash Narayan movement, which threatened Indira Gandhi in the mid-1970s and was part of the context for the introduction of the political emergency by Indira Gandhi in 1975. That was really a movement of students, partly disgruntled because of a lack of good employment opportunities. You have the problem of the Naxalite movement in central India, which is not actually educated unemployed youth. It's more uneducated youth who feel frustrated with government and frustrated by the scale of social inequalities and their lack of access to resources. So there are certainly examples of that kind of violent, threatening insurrection in India, but not nearly as many as you'd expect. And I think a lot of that is because educated, unemployed youth feel that the electoral process provides some kind of way to express their discontent. I think it's because they believe in the idea that the Indian state can and should work better for them and for their communities. They don't see social disruption, violence as a way of, of solving the problem. Now, one of the interesting questions I've been investigating in my own research is what happens when youth graduate from university, can't find secure employment, what do they do? On the one hand, you see some of these youth actually becoming involved in running small-scale private educational institutions. Now, some of those are very poor quality, and they offer training in things like how to prepare for government interviews, how to improve your personality, those kinds of things. In that case, you see unemployed youth in effect, reproducing the system that produced them as unemployed youth. Mm, mm. So it's a sort of negative feedback. But the big story, I think, is is actually one of positive feedback, that these youth have the time, the skills, the motivation to get involved in trying to link poor people to the state, in trying to reform education to make it better for the next generation. They're actually a positive force in society, rather than being that classic image of unemployed youth as a negative threat. So do you see um, India as as coping well with the young population? Because there's a lot of countries, uh, especially Western countries, say in Europe, Japan, Australia, even China to some extent, where their populations are aging. But with India, it seems to be going in, in the opposite direction. And that gives it a lot of potential, I suppose, a youth capital, a labor force, maybe an edge in the future. Do you think that they're well suited to exploit that? And how could they do that? Sure. I mean, Joan Robinson, the economist, once said that for anything that can be rightly said about India, the opposite is always true. I could hear the other side of that question as soon as I was asking yeah, it. Yeah. And I think the positives are the political and, and the social, the strong political institutions, the rise of social movements that express new ideas. I would also add to that the reasonably robust economic growth that's occurred in the country. All these are on the positive side of the ledger. The big negatives are two words, education and health. And that's really where India needs to, in my view, take stock. And I think I'm thinking of investment here, partly in narrow financial terms. They're not spending enough of GDP Mm. on these areas. So health, I think, is about 1.9% of GDP still, or not much more than that. Education has bumped along at around 3 to 3.5% for a long time. Now, successive politicians prior to election have made promises of raising both to 6%, for example, which will be much closer to the mean across countries in the global south. But they've never managed that. 
And that lack of financial investment is a major problem, but also there's a lack of investment in regulation, oversight, reform. Problems of malpractice and corruption continue to characterise public schooling systems and health systems. Now, Prime Minister Modi's made some pretty important improvements in that area, Mm. but still the reality is that if, if you're growing up, particularly in a provincial part of North India, you may well find that your science teacher is not actually there because he or she has paid to be transferred to a city where he or she can live more comfortably and educate their own children to a greater extent. So those kinds of problems of a lack of capacity, a lack of effective delivery of education and health are huge. According to one expert in Delhi recently, 30 million people move into poverty every year in India as a result of catastrophic health expenditure in a context where very few people have any health insurance and where there's quite a lot of uh, skullduggery in the sphere of private medicine in provincial areas. So, So misdiagnosis unnecessary surgery, unnecessary types of treatment as a way of making money from people who really don't have the full range of information or the resources required to really make informed decisions about health. So those are the kind of key challenges, I think, for India over the next two decades, is how to effectively invest and reform its public education system and its public health care system. I'd like to turn the topic now to gender imbalance, if I could. And numbers vary, but one figure that I found was from the United Nations that said that the number of men in India outnumber women by around 43 million. This kind of imbalance would have pressures on the workforce, pressures on the home life. Mm. But if I was young in India, I would just be worried about finding a wife. I suppose with that sort of number. Can you talk to me a bit about that? What's your perception of that issue? Well, it is a huge issue. And in some areas of India, that gender imbalance has become worse over the past 20 years. So it's a a really serious issue. Sorry, firstly, is is there a favouring of of boys? Well, there's quite a lot of sort of mythology around this. Mm. And and there is a literature on the issue of uh, what's called female infanticide, actually the killing of, of baby girls. Uh, Now, that's, in my experience and reading, very rare. The bigger problem is twofold. First of all, the selective care in infancy. So if a boy and a girl both have diarrhea, the boy will get more water or food because they're they're seen as being more valuable Mm. in some places, in some communities. Now, of course, you know, it's really important not to paint this as a as an aspect of Indian culture, inverted commas. This is this varies a great deal according to community, according to area, according to social position and so forth. But that problem of selective care of boys over girls has been observed in many parts of India over the past 40 years and largely explains why more boys survive into sort of middle childhood than girls. Mm. That's one aspect. The other aspect is related to technology, that you've had the rise of uh, a range of of ultrasound clinics which have been used by people to find out the sex of their child very early on and then particularly where parents already have two or three girls, if they're expecting another girl, they will abort it. Mm. That, again, has become a problem. How about gender issues as far as responsibilities and access to the workforce and and Mm. those kind of issues, which is going to become more pronounced in a young 
demographic population like that? Yeah, let me say this in answer to your question. And one of the interesting things I've noticed, or actually we've noticed, I I work with my wife, Dr. Jane Dyson, on these issues in in a village in uh, a remote part of the Himalayas. We've noticed that young women who were educated with a view to them working in the home Mm. and being involved in childcare are suddenly being told in their late teens and early 20s, actually, your brother or your brothers hasn't managed to find work. Although we weren't thinking of you engaging in paid employment outside the home, we now think you really ought to try and find such employment because it would help sort of bring in money. Mm. So you've got a a group of young women who, who in a sense, are facing a kind of double pressure, the pressure of being expected as a result of prevalent gender norms to work very hard in the home, to engage in childcare, to look after ill relatives, and at the same time, the pressure to now compete in this cutthroat employment market for the small number of salaried jobs that exist. The pressures on young women at the moment in in the parts of India in which I work are really very intense. Patriarchal norms still are important. They're slow to break down. And at the same time, where they are breaking down and women, for example, are being encouraged to enter paid employment, it's often in ways that aren't emancipatory. It's simply adding another burden Mm. to young women. I think gender inequalities is major topic. It's not something that one can say is part of, of an India past. It's very much part of India present and, and India future. So much can change in India in the coming years. It could be a good change or a bad change. So are, are you positive? Are you encouraged by what you see in India now or do you give it 50-50? <laughs> I was going to say 50-50. Yeah. You know, academics are told not to ever predict what's going to happen. They, they, really, they really don't like that question. They usually wriggle out of it by saying how complex it is and how you can't tell and it's 50-50. I'm pretty positive, though. I think there's a spirit in the parts of provincial India in which I work, which is actually quite similar to the spirit that I found in the two years I've lived in Australia, a spirit of kindness to strangers, of directness, a kind of have-a-go, can-do type mentality, Mm. which fits people pretty well for trying to cope with issues like underemployment and poor public services. There's a great deal of energy, not just within political parties, within the big NGOs that pop up now and again in the news, but also actually in just civil society and just ordinary populations, young people who are working as motivators. They're trying to help other young people. Youth who are working free of charge as tutors in villages for younger children. Youth who are setting up private schools, not to make a fast buck, but because they want the schooling system to be better in their villages. So there's lots of little wells of energy and optimism and hope in Indian villages and small towns that I think, when one looks across the piece, do encourage a positive outlook towards the future. Craig Jeffrey, thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you very much, Matthew. That's all the time we've got for the podcast today. You can follow Craig on Twitter. He's at Craig Jeffrey AII. And Latrobe Asia is also on Twitter. You can follow us at Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on SoundCloud and iTunes, where reviews and ratings are appreciated. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>